Turn to Mark chapter 10. We will get there eventually. Mark chapter 10 has to do with the question of divorce. But that's not really what it's all about. Far too often, I think, people go to Mark chapter 10 and they think that that is the whole of what Jesus thought or taught about divorce. The marriage continuous out there, people who say no divorce, no time, no how, no matter what, those folks often go to Mark chapter 10 because Mark and Matthew both include the same information from Jesus But Matthew includes an exception clause, and Mark does not include the exception clause. So it's easy to read Mark chapter 10 and say, there, Jesus said, no divorce, no how, nobody, no time. But the Bible says a lot about divorce, about the putting away of a wife or a husband, but in this particular instance, I'm hoping this morning to show you that there was a lot more going on than just the question of divorce. Because we, as you've heard me say zillions of times, you could probably repeat it without me saying it, we've got to be careful when we read the Bible that we don't force it into a 21st century Gentile mindset. And here in the 21st century American society, divorce is a very big deal. But divorce for us also has to do with state licensing and taxation and the federal government and and how we're combining our social security numbers. In fact, in order to get married, we end up going to get a marriage license from the state. And the state decrees that we're married or then the state decrees that we're divorced when we go in front of a state-appointed judge. Well, that was not the case when Jesus was on the planet. In fact, when Jesus was confronted about the question of divorce, he was actually being asked a very deep theological question in order to try to trap him. Both Mark and Matthew take the time to tell us that when the Pharisees asked him this question, they were trying to trap him. So in what way is the question a trap? I mean, shouldn't he be able to just answer the question, can you put away your wife? Can you put away your wife for every cause? Well, that was the question. But where does that question come from? Why would they even ask that question? That's why we're going to spend a little time this morning looking into a bit of history that actually starts back in the time of Ezra, who providentially we are teaching about and going through Ezra and Nehemiah on Wednesday nights right now. Because Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem is the beginning of what is known historically as the second temple period in the history of the Jews, in the history of Israel. And that second temple period from the rebuilding under Ezra and Nehemiah Until 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, that period of time was unique in Israel's history and in Jerusalem's history because during that period they did not have a king. During that time, the leadership was religious leadership. 
And as they jockeyed for more and more political power and authority, the religious leaders developed things that we read about in the New Testament that we don't read about in the Old Testament. And it's like, where did these things come from? For instance, who are the Pharisees and where do they come from? How do they show up? And we read a lot about the Sanhedrin. Well, what's the Sanhedrin? Why does that exist? Where did that come from? What is the deal with the scribes and the Pharisees versus the Sadducees? And actually, there were four different religious groups in that intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was the way of the Pharisees. There was the teaching of the Sadducees. There was also a group called the Essenes. And then there was a group that rose up that were just known as the Fourth Way. Okay, so these different political and religious factions within Judaism rose up and competed with each other. Competed with each other even to the degree that they wouldn't socialize with each other or intermarry with each other even though they were all Jewish. Even though they were all descendants of Abraham, they became divided from each other for political reasons. So I'm going to spend a little time reading just a bit of history. Really, the big effort I put into my notes yesterday was just paring it down because there's so much that goes on between the end of the Old Testament, which is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the time that Malachi is prophesying. Malachi, who, by the way, includes the phrase that God hates divorce, So that's kind of the ending of the Old Testament period. And then it's the end of the prophets. For 400 years, God is essentially silent. But during that time, there's a lot of history that goes on in the Middle East there. In fact, as the Old Testament closes, the Medo-Persians are still in control. But we know historically that then the Greeks come in, Alexander the Great, And after Alexander dies, his kingdom is divided up among his four generals. And we know that ultimately it is Seleucus Nicator who rules over the Seleucid portion of the Alexandrian kingdom. So he ends up ruling over Jerusalem. But before that, the Ptolemies out of Egypt rule over that area of the Middle East for a while. So during that 400 years, there's all kinds of turmoil going on in the Middle East. And Jerusalem is just trying to hang on as all these different kingdoms come in, as all these other rulers come in and control them, none of whom allowed them to be independent and have their own king. So they were always ruled by foreign powers, but then they wanted somebody to just tell them how to live, what to do. Now, what we saw this past Wednesday was that Ezra read out the law again to Israel. Israel's been in Babylon for 70 years. And then under Cyrus, they start being allowed to come back under Zerubbabel, and then another wave under Ezra, another wave under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. The temple has been rebuilt. And those successive waves of Jews returning from Babylon haven't been exposed to the law of Moses. And Ezra finds the law and he starts reading the law out to the people. And as he's reading out the law, the Levites that are with him start explaining and teaching the law to the people. 
So they're gathering sometimes three days a week just to hear the law read, which sometimes would take three hours out of a day. And then they would confess their sins for another three hours, six hours out of every time they met at the temple, six hours of their day was just hearing the law and confessing it. But most of those people were not well-versed in Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. And so it was necessary for the Levites and for the scribes to start telling the people what the law said because they didn't speak the language that the law was written in. And you know that as soon as human beings have the opportunity to start explaining to people what God said, well, then they start being looked to as the interpreter of God's word, and they start listening to that man. They start favoring different men and different teachers, different rabbis that rise up and start giving their interpretation of the law, and that's why you start having this breakdown between Pharisees and Sadducees and the Essenes who are more, less politically motivated And then ultimately the fourth way that rises up, well, that all rises up because the word of God says what it says, but then men lay their hands on the word of God and men start making up what they think the word of God says, what they think the law of God is. Then they break into factions. Then they become little groups that won't intermarry with the other groups and don't discuss with the other groups, sort of like the church is today. The only thing we've learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. So, as I just mentioned, there was the deportation and the exile of the Jews into the kingdom of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And that's all like 587 B.C. that that's all happening. Then there's the destruction of the temple. And that results right away in dramatic changes for Jewish culture and Jewish religion because the temple was the center of their religion. They had to go there three times a year. They had to sacrifice there. They had to keep their high days. They had to keep their sacrifices. They had to keep their offerings. They had to bring their tithes. They had to do all that to the temple. Now there's no temple. What are you going to do? And so they started creating houses of learning and houses of instruction and even just houses of meetings. During that 70-year Babylon exile, Jewish houses of assembly that were known as the Knesset started meeting, just places where they could get together. The Greek word for the house of meeting, the Bet Knesset, is the word synagogue. So that's why you find the word synagogue in the New Testament. What the synagogues were, they're not the temple, but they are the places where the Jews can meet and study the law together. And there were also just houses of prayer, the Bet Tefillah, where they would get together and just pray to God. So those became like primary meeting places for them. And then there developed a house of study, which was known as the Bet Midrash where they would get together to just study the law. And of course, if you're going to get together and study, that means someone's going to have to explain. Someone's going to have to teach. And so factions started growing up among various different teachers. So 539 BC, I already mentioned it, Cyrus the Great allows the Jews to return to Judah to rebuild the temple, but he did not 
allow during the restoration of the Judean city, he didn't restore the Judean monarchy. The descendants of David were not reestablished. So they didn't have a king, but they had religious rulers. And because there was no king, the religious rulers started amassing power to themselves, started amassing political influence to themselves. Without the constraining power of a monarchy, the authority of the temple in their civic life became amplified. So it's around this time that the Sadducee party emerges. That's a party of priests and elites in Israel. They've gotten together and kind of decided we're the important families. Do you remember as we've been reading through the book of Nehemiah, and in fact, just this past week, we saw that there were people who couldn't prove their pedigree. They couldn't prove their genealogy, some of whom were priests. But because they couldn't prove their genealogy, they weren't even allowed to be priests. They weren't even considered to be ceremonially clean. So there's a group of them who have the pedigree, who really have the authority and the genealogy, and they gang together as a group and say, okay, we're the leaders. We're the real leaders. Well, that's the beginning of the Sadducees. The Sadducees became so politically motivated that much of their political authority in first century Jerusalem had less to do with theology than it had to do with politics, which is why we read in the New Testament that while the Pharisees believed in things like the afterlife and angels and stuff. The Sadducees didn't believe in any of that because they weren't emphasizing theology. They were emphasizing politics and control. So this second temple period, the temple was completed 515 BC. It had been constructed under the auspices of a foreign power. We've been reading that. We've been reading about the fact that it's the succession of Persian kings from Cyrus all the way down to Artaxerxes, they have allowed the temple to be rebuilt. And they have even given the money and the, the access to their forests for the wood in order to rebuild the temple. So the temple stands. It's not as grand or as great as the Solomonic temple, but a lot of people are skeptical about it because it's under the control of foreign powers. So there were lingering questions about its legitimacy. So this provided the condition for the development of various sets or schools of thought. That's S-E-C-T-S for you kids who weren't listening closely. It developed into various different groups of people and schools of thought. And each of them claimed to have the exclusive authority to represent Judaism. Every one of them said, no, we've got it right. And they all continued to argue with each other and juggle against each other in order to amass authority to themselves. So, like I said, they ultimately reached the point where they wouldn't even interact with one another. They just became schools of thought within Judaism during that period of time. So, although the priests controlled the rituals inside the temple... It was the scribes and the sages who later were called rabbis 
Jesus was even called rabbi. It means teacher or master. So these scribes and these rabbis began to dominate the study of the Torah because the study of the Torah wasn't going on in the temple. It was going on in these Knesset groups. It was going on in these synagogues. It was going on in these smaller factional groups. And so they, the rabbis, start kind of amassing power to themselves, especially when it came to interpreting the law. And then those men maintained that there was an oral tradition that they believed went all the way back to Moses at Mount Sinai, that alongside the law, the Torah that was given to Moses, that he was also given a God-given interpretation of the law. And that that had been handed down ever since Moses in an oral tradition handed down to these rabbis who had knowledge of the law then that the common people would not have. And of course, people flocked to people who claimed to have special knowledge. So then you get into the Hellenistic period of the Middle East. Am I boring anybody yet? No. Are you with this? Yes. Okay. Medo-Persia is conquered by Alexander the Great. That's the beginning of the Hellenization of the Middle East. That's from Alexander the Great conquering Persia. That's 332 BC. You don't find that in the Bible. This is the intertestamental period. Now, you can find some books that are known as the intertestamental books, like First uh, and Second Maccabees, which is a history book that is all about the Jews withstanding the incursion of the Greeks. But you won't find any of that in the Bible. So there's a rift then between the priests and these rabbis, these sages that develops during that time when the Jews face new political and cultural struggles. They had just gotten used to the Medo-Persians and the Medo-Persians were good to the Jews. Let them go back and reestablish their temple and their city. But now in come the Greeks and there's a whole new cultural change. And in the midst of all this cultural change, you have all these factions accumulating more power to themselves because there's no centralized king. At the time of Alexander's death, 323 B.C., Judea then gets ruled over the Egyptian Ptolemies until 198 B.C. By the way, even though you don't read that bit of history in the intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, nevertheless, you can read the book of Daniel, and he predicts that. Daniel tells us, and the Greeks are coming, and then he gets into the king of the north and the king of the south, and he talks exactly about the battles between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, and the way the Ptolemies rule for a while, and the Seleucids rule for a while, and that all turned out to actually be history. So even though you don't find it written about in the intertestamental period, in other words, as it was actually happening, you do find it all predicted in the book of Daniel, and it came out the exact way that Daniel said it was going to. So then you get into the Seleucid Empire under Antiochus III when he seized control of the Middle East. And then in 167 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus IV invaded Judea. Antiochus IV, you should know his name, or Antiochus, whichever way you want to pronounce it. 
That's Antiochus Epiphanes. That's Antiochus is God. He thought that he was God incarnate, and especially once he had conquered Jerusalem, he then went in and demonstrated that he was God by desecrating the temple in Jerusalem by sacrificing a pig on the altar. That's all happening 167 BC, so we're talking about 160 years before Jesus comes on the planet at this point. He invades Judea, he enters the temple, he strips it of all its money and all its ceremonial objects, he desecrates it, and then he imposed a program of forced Hellenization requiring the Jews to abandon their own laws and their own customs, thus precipitating the Maccabean revolt. If you go read First and Second Maccabees, you can read about Judas Maccabees, which means Judas is the hammer of God. And he revolts against the Hellenization of the Jews, especially because they were told to abandon their God and to abandon their customs, and they fought back. Jerusalem was liberated around 165 BC and the temple gets restored and then in 141 BC an assembly of priests and others decided to make Simon Maccabeus who was the high priest and the leader at that time they decided to make him also their official leader and that begins what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty leading up to the time of Jesus. And it's right about that period that the Pharisees emerge. After defeating the Seleucid forces, Judas Maccabeus' nephew, John Hyrcanus, established a new monarchy in the form of a priestly Hasmonean dynasty in 152 BC, thus establishing priests as political as well as religious authorities. Because he was a priest who rose up and was made king. So now you have these priest kings in Jerusalem. Now, of course, the Romans, once they conquer the Greeks, aren't having any of this. So once they conquer Jerusalem, they put their own puppet king in place. That's where you get the succession of the Herods. And Herod was an Edomian. He wasn't even a Jew, but the Romans put him in place so that they could control the Middle East and control Jerusalem, and they got rid of the whole Hasmonean party. So although the Hasmoneans were considered heroes for resisting the Seleucids, their lack of legitimacy came from the fact that they weren't from the Davidic dynasty, and they had no connection to the Solomonic temple at all. So there was a party that rose up that was called the Separatist Party that was reacting to the fact that their now king had no connection to David. And he would have to be a Davidic son in order to be the king. That party was known as the Purush. They were known as the Purushi. We know them as the Pharisees. They are the Separatist Party. Their name comes from the Hebrew and the Aramaic, and it means one who is separated. Now, that may refer to their separation from Gentiles. It may also be that they separated from their other Jewish brethren. But one of their chief characteristics was that they argued that the ceremonial cleansing rules 
that applied for the priests in the temple needed to apply in the everyday life of every Jew living in Jerusalem. So suddenly they're promoting cleanliness rules to everybody, and they're becoming the chief arbiters of who and what is clean or unclean. Another major difference is their continued adherence to the laws and the traditions of the Jewish people in the face of the assimilation, both by the Greeks and the Romans. In other words, they were saying, no, we've been told by God to be like this, so we're going to separate and we're going to maintain our own customs, our own history, and our own oral tradition. I'm nearly done. Am I boring anyone yet? I'm getting to Mark 10. Because the more you understand about these divisions, the more you're going to understand this question. So then the Sadducees rejected the Pharisees' tenet that there was an oral Torah. In their personal lives, this meant that they became excessively stringent in their lifestyle from a Jewish perspective as they did away with the oral tradition. And in turn, the Pharisaic understanding of the Torah created two Jewish understandings of the Torah, and they split into two schools of thought. And the two primary schools of thought became the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. And we'll talk about those two rabbis in just a second. The sages of the Talmud see a direct link between themselves and the Pharisees, by the way, to this very day. Historians generally consider Pharisaic Judaism to be the progenitor of rabbinic Judaism, that is the normative mainstream Judaism of today, after the destruction of the Second Temple. All mainstream forms of Judaism today consider themselves to be heirs of rabbinic Judaism, and that means they ultimately see themselves as descendants of the Pharisees, that group. So who are Hillel and who are Shammai and what in the world do they have to do with Mark 10 and Jim, why are you going down this rabbit trail and why are you even interested in such things? Please watch a movie, read a book, listen to a record. Please do something interesting. This is where my mind goes. (laughs) Hillel was born in Babylon around... 110 B.C., so we're leading right up to the time of Jesus. He died in 10 A.D., so he died at like 100 years old, 110 years old. No, that'd actually be 120 if we do the math. And then you take away the zero because there's no zero A.D., so he'd be 119. I did math this morning. I know. So he's a religious Jewish leader. In fact, he's one of the most important figures in all of Jewish history. He's associated with the development of both the Mishnah and the Talmud. If you don't know the Mishnah and the Talmud, those are extra books written by the rabbis that are not the Torah. They're not the law. They're an explanation of the Torah, an explanation of the law. And really, if you read them, They have less to do with theology than they do with behavior. 
This is the way you got to behave to be really, really Jewish and to be really, really ceremonially clean. So he's one of the leaders in the development of the Mishnah and the Talmud. To this day, he's renowned within Judaism as a sage, as a scholar. And so he becomes the founder of the school of Hillel. And then they're also known as the sages of the Mishnah. Doesn't that sound impressive? And he becomes the founder of a dynasty of sages who stood at the very head of the Jews living in the land of Israel until roughly the 5th century A.D. Okay, so when Jesus walks on the planet, the school of Hillel is a really big deal. But then there's this guy, Shammai. Now, Hillel is 60 years old when Shammai is born. Shammai starts his own school, and he decides that Hillel is all wet. And so he becomes the first Jewish scholar of the first century to start countering the school of Hillel. He becomes the most eminent contemporary and opponent of Hillel and is almost invariably mentioned. Whenever you look online, look up Hillel or look up Shammai. If you look up Shammai, they'll talk about Hillel. If you talk about Hillel, look up Hillel, they'll talk about Shammai. Because the two were so important in that century leading up to the time of Jesus. So Shammai develops his own school known as the House of Shammai, which differed fundamentally from that of Hillel. One of the places where they disagreed and disagreed vehemently was on the question of divorce. Now you see why it has to do with Mark 10. There it is. I brought it around. All that stuff, I finally got it back to Mark 10. The house of Hillel was very, very liberal. And the house of Hillel said that you could divorce your wife for any cause. In fact, he listed things like, if she burned the breakfast. In fact, one of Hillel's rules for divorcing your wife was, if you just didn't like her anymore. If you favored somebody else, you could just divorce your wife for any cause. The house of Shammai said, no, we have to pay more attention to not only the law, but the rabbi's interpretation of the law. And he was much stricter. And so he said that you could only divorce your wife for the cause of sexual impurity. Okay, this is a big, big debate First century Judaism as Jesus is walking on the planet. This is a major division between two schools of thought. The two primary rabbis, the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, they differ on the question of divorce. Now let's read Mark 10. And rising up, Jesus went from there into the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan And crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Notice that is Jesus' custom. He's a teacher. That's what he primarily did. Yes, he healed people. Yes, he did miracles. Yes, he raised the dead. Primarily what he did was he taught. That was his custom. So once more he taught them. And some Pharisees, now we know who those are, now some separatists, who had imposed 
cleanliness rules that were meant just for the temple have now imposed those cleanliness rules on all of Judea. Some of them come up testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now you know why that's a test for Jesus. What they're saying to him is, what school are you? Which one are you? Because depending on what you say next, roughly 50% of Judah is against you. And they're constantly trying to divide the people from Jesus. They see Jesus amassing all these people, and they're constantly trying to trip him up, and they're constantly trying to prove to the people that he's not trustworthy. You can't follow him. If he says, yes, it's right that, that you divorce your wife for any cause, well, then that's the school of Hillel, but the school of Shammai, the younger, more vibrant group at that time, is going to say, well, then we're not going to follow Jesus anymore. If he goes with the school of Shammai, well, then the Hillel people, who are much more liberal, are going to say, well, then you can't be our Messiah because you're going to impose laws that we don't agree with. So that question, that question of divorce, that question, can you divorce your wife for any cause, isn't just a 21st century Gentile question. It's a Middle Eastern first century question that has more to do with politics than it does marriage. You get that? Because the Bible, as you continue to read it, says more about divorce than what Jesus says here. Jesus' answer here is very concise. That's the way Mark records it. But then you go read other parts of the Bible that also talk about divorce, and Jesus says nothing about those things. And so people, when they're discussing divorce as a topic, will say, well, what, then why didn't Jesus bring those things up? Why didn't he say anything about those things? Well, because he was answering a political question that was designed to trip him up. Notice his answer. What school are you? You Hallel, you Shammai. Which one are you? What does he do? He says, what does the word of God say? He cuts right through the two schools and goes right back to what does God's word say? Which is the answer to all our theological questions. It's always, what does God's word say? Go back to God's word and notice how many times Jesus does that in his ministry. Here he's doing it again. He answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Not Hillel, not Shammai, not the Pharisees, not the Sadducees, not the scribes, not the rabbis. None of that. What did the word of God say to you? What did Moses command? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And by the way, that's absolutely true. Somebody look up Deuteronomy 24 for me and read the first three verses. Because Deuteronomy does include a command that you would give a wife a bill of divorcement if you sent her out of the house so that she could then remarry, so that she could then be cared for in a completely patriarchal society. So you had to give her an actual bill that she was free of the previous marriage so that she could then go out 
and be remarried. Somebody got that? Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 3. Tom's going to read. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then he, <laughs> her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has, has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Good. You were, you were wise to keep going. <laughs> okay, so within that set of rules, there is the allowance that you could give your wife a certificate of divorce. And so they say Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now Jesus does the same thing we have seen him do time and time again, like on the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, you've heard it said, but I say? He said, what does Moses say? Okay, that's what the Word of God says. Now we know what the Torah says. Now we understand what the law says. Now he's got something to say. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Okay, they would never have known that. That took Jesus coming to the planet to explain that the only reason that God allowed divorce to begin with was because your hearts became so hard against your wives that God allowed that the wife would no longer have to live with you so that she could go on and be the wife of someone else because your hearts were so hard against them. There was actually a kindness on God's part written right into the law. But then Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother, in other words, this is going to become their primary relationship. As you're growing up, your relationship is with your mom and your dad. But you're going to leave mom and dad. You're going to cling to her because that's your primary relationship in life now. And from the beginning, God made the male and female, one man, one woman. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother. The two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So his answer to the divorce question is, yes, Moses allowed it, but that was never God's intention. From the beginning, God had a plan, one man, one woman, and anything outside of that union is considered fornication, in a moment, he's going to say it's considered adultery. You've broken the marriage relationship. Anything outside of that is not allowed. That's a no-go. One man, one woman, that's the relationship. And when that union between that man and that woman happens, the union that I'm right now circumventing for the sake of the young people in the room, when that union happens, they become 
one flesh. They become one person. Okay, so what is it that makes them the one person? Well, it's that union. It's that joining. And if that union or that joining becomes broken by them becoming active with somebody else, that's why Jesus includes the clause in Matthew that we're going to look at in a minute where he says, except for the cause of adultery, because adultery breaks the marriage union. In fact, in the Old Testament, adultery was a stonable offense, and death pretty much ends your marriage. That would, do it. that would be the end of your marriage. And so adultery was such a big deal in our, this is easy to say, you could all say it. Anybody in the room could stand up right now and say what I'm about to say. It preaches itself. In our modern society, adultery, no big deal. Fornication, sex outside of marriage, no big deal. According to the Bible, really big deal. According to what the Bible says, that can destroy your marriage union. And in the Old Testament, you could be killed for it. Now you can see why Jesus would say, if the two of you are married and it turns out that one of you has been sexually impure, that's enough to destroy the marriage bond. That's enough then that you could find some impurity in her and put her away. The law says it and Jesus says it. So when they got into the house, verse 10 says, in the house the disciples began questioning him about this again because once they hear one man, one woman, and you can't just get rid of your wife for any old cause you want, they're kind of like, whoa, hang on there, Jesus. You know, Hillel doesn't say that. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. Who's the her in that sentence? The her is the original wife. They are one flesh. If he puts her away and he goes and becomes one flesh with another woman, he's committing adultery against his first wife. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery because she and her husband are one flesh. Then she's left the husband she's one flesh with and she's gone and had sex with another man and now has committed adultery against him. Any of those scenarios destroy the marriage bond. But that also answers the question that he was originally asked. Can a man get rid of his wife for any cause at all? And his answer is no, but for the cause of sexual impurity, for the cause of adultery, for the cause of fornication, the marriage bond that incorporates, that sets a marriage as a one flesh thing, when that bond is broken, there is no marriage. Go back to the book of Matthew for a minute. Matthew 19, turn there. And we'll see what Matthew says because he includes the exception clause. Okay, now am I boring you? No. Still interested? Okay. We're nearly done. Ain't history fun? (laughs) Chapter 19, verse 1. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. 
And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? That phrase right there puts it right into the Hillel camp. Can he get rid of his wife for any cause at all? That's the trick question. He answered and said, Have you not read? In other words, what does Moses say? It's in the law. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, he then explains, they are no longer two, they are one flesh. What therefore God joined together, let no man separate. By the way, I believe that that let no man separate includes you, includes the people who are asking this question. Because the people who are asking this question believed you could get rid of your wife for any cause. And he says, if you and your wife are one flesh, then God sees you as and has made you one flesh. So no man, including yourself, ought to separate that. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except, see there's the exception clause, that you don't find in Mark. And the reason you don't find it in Mark is that Mark is really honing in on the fact that Jesus is correcting the misunderstandings of the two schools of thought between Hillel and Shammai, they're trying to trap him with that political question. He cuts right through it with the word of God. Therefore, in Mark's thinking and writing to a Gentile audience, it's not necessary to include the exception clause because Jesus has already answered the question. So the marriage continuous who glom on to Mark 9 or Mark 10 and say, there, Jesus says, no divorce, no how, no way, never, never, never. Well, they're not paying attention to the fact that there is an exception clause in Matthew's telling of it. And what is that exception clause? It's exactly what I just described. If you've committed adultery, if you're committing fornication, if it's anything other than one man, one woman married, then it's not allowable. It's a no-go. No way, no how. Nada. And yet, because of our modern society... And because of our modern governmental forms of marriage, we don't realize that becoming one flesh with another person means that we're either married to them or we've committed adultery against someone else. And that is such a big deal, you get killed for it. But we, we take it pretty lightly. We just, just kind of go on with it. It's no big deal. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not always been that way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, that sexual immorality, that's the word pornaya. That's the word from which we get pornography, pornographic, or the shorter nickname, porn. 
if there is anything pornographic about her, if she's not a virgin and you're getting married, if there's some sexual uncleanness or impurity in her and you discover it, well, even the law says that you can hand her a bill of divorcement. So except for immorality, he's agreeing with Moses there, and then he marries another woman, he commits adultery. And the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it's just better not to get married. They're deeply in the flesh at this point. <laughs> They're just like, okay, if those are the rules, if it's not the Hillel rules, if we can't just divorce anytime we want to, well, then it's probably just better not to get married because you're going to have this wife for the rest of your life. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement but only those to whom it's been given. Was there ever a more true statement to this very day? It's very clear what the Bible says. You can ask non-Christians, do Christians believe in sleeping around? And they'll go, no, that's, that's a Christian thing. You don't do that. We know that. That's Christian. It's just not biblical. We don't do that. People will look at the word of God, they will look at the law of God, and they will hear my words. And they will hear it said to them, they'll hear it, they'll understand it, they'll comprehend it, they'll agree that yes, it's written in there, and then they'll turn around and go their own way and do their own thing. Why? Because human beings in their ego, in their pride, in their arrogance, want their own way. And if you really get down to what it's all about, it's really about the fact that human beings like their sin more than they like God. It's just a fact. Human beings prefer their own opinion to what God says. So now turn back to Mark 10 for a minute. Because we're going to read just the next little section because it's a wonderful contrast. Starting in chapter 10, verse 13. After that big, heavy conversation. After that big political hoo-ha. Uh, Hoo-ha is the word I went with. After all of that heaviness, the next thing that happens is children come to him. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. No, no children. This is for grown-ups. We're all grown-ups here. We don't know children. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. What does the word indignant mean? He was angry. He was mad. He was upset with them. And he said to them, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Okay, in what way? In what way does the kingdom of God belong to such as these? He then explains it truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and he began blessing them and laying his hands upon them. Children, unlike the schools of rabbinic thought, unlike the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the politics and the grown-up arguments, unlike the questions that are designed to trap Jesus, unlike all of that, children just accepted him, loved him for who he was, wanted to get to him right there. You can tell a child 
while their minds are still being formed and open, you can tell a child anything. You can convince them of Santa Claus, for heaven's sake. You can convince them that every Easter, a giant rodent comes in their house <laughs> and gives them eggs for some reason, because rabbits lay eggs. And that all makes sense. And they'll go, yeah, okay, I believe that. Yeah, Because they're children that believe anything. Jesus says, the way that you come to me is not with all those questions designed to judge me, to put me on trial. The way you come to me is not to raise your different schools of thought and theological questions and arguments and debates. You don't come to me with all that and then put me on trial like you're in charge. The way you come to me is like a child, faithful, believing, trusting like a child. And he says, that's how you get in. To the kingdom. And I think that's a purposeful contrast on Mark's part between the grown ups who were trying so hard to divide people from him, who were trying to scatter the sheep, who were trying to catch him in some theological nuance so that they could judge him, versus just children that just love him, children that just come to him. And he says, that's the way to do it. I don't think that's a mistake that it's juxtaposed against the Pharisees and their questions. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for weekly updates and our ever-expanding archives. Join us again next time as we delve into the Word of God and study His sovereign grace.